seated. Once again, we want to welcome everybody to our Sunday morning service of worship. If you maybe walked in a little bit after the first song or the greeting or tuned in a little bit after that, we want to welcome you online, those in the Fellowship Hall, and of course here in the, in the main sanctuary. Welcome. Uh, one of my first jobs uh, was a substitute teacher. So um, I am in that position once again. Pastor Eric, unfortunately, is a little under the weather. He's fine, but um, just uh, needed a, a little bit of, of respite. So I am your substitute teacher today. Hopefully, my only goal as a substitute teacher was make sure the kids didn't burn the place down, and I kept order, and the teacher was satisfied when he or she came back. So uh, that's the goal for, for today. Hopefully, it's a low bar. I can reach it. But uh, if, there, if you're new or visiting, we have a connection card in the chair pouch in front of you. If you are a regular attendee here, um, those connection cards really are our connection to you. So if you have questions about the church, questions about the Christian life, you have a prayer request, please fill those out. Drop them off in the Agape box on the way out. Uh, we love to pray for you during the week. And again, it just allows us to reach out to you and hopefully connect you more to our body here at the church. Uh, coming up, a couple quick announcements. Mission Sunday is coming up Sunday, August 29th. That is a Sunday at 1 p.m. We're going to have kind of a missions update as to what God has done throughout this kind of new season with Pastor Aaron at the helm overseeing our missions program. Uh, we've sent out a number of teams out to Mexico uh, this past summer, whether they're youth teams or, or young adult teams. We're going to be sending an adult team as well here, uh, uh, God willing, at the end of September into October. It's going to be a four-day trip. We do have a sign-up sheet out in the lobby, so if that's something on your heart, we can only take about 30 people. We have about 12 or 15 that have expressed interest, so go ahead and sign up. We'll have more information on that later, but Mission Sunday will be a time when you'll get to hear, uh, have an opportunity to hear personal testimonies as to what God has done through those mission teams in the lives of those down uh, uh, beyond the border and, and what God is doing in the lives of our uh, short-term missionaries and our long-term missionaries as well. So We'd love for you to come out, bring a dessert to share. There will be tacos served, and so you can kind of make a day of it here at Calvary Chapel West Grove. If you're a first service person, come on back at 1 p.m. If you attend second service, it's just kind of a nice, lengthy morning to, to afternoon stay. So we also have a, another event that we're really, really excited about and praying for, and we uh, covet your prayers as well. It's going to be our baptiz baptism and bonfire nights, kind of the first of its kind. I don't remember one like this here, at least at this fellowship, but Sunday, September 26th, that is a Sunday, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. So we'll have our two morning services, and then we'll meet down at the beach at 4 p.m., and we're going to do uh, some baptisms uh, in the, at Bolsa Chica Beach there, and then just have a time of bonfire fellowship afterwards. Um, we'll kind of provide some of the hot dogs and stuff that you can kind of uh, cook around the bonfire, but if you want to bring a dessert or something else, like a picnic-type lunch or, or, or meal, bring that out to share, and we'll just have a sweet time of fellowship in the evening uh, together as we baptize those who have not yet been, want to make that proclamation and have not yet been baptized and uh, enjoy the, the rest of the evening down at the beach. So be praying for that. Uh, maybe invite somebody out. Some, somebody might not come to a service at 9 or 11, kind of too churchy for them, but they might come to a bonfire. And, and when you see somebody proclaim the Lord. What's gone on internally is now proclaimed externally through baptism. It's powerful. And so uh, be thinking, praying about who you could invite to, to come on out to that event. So September 26th, 3 p.m. 
to 6 p.m. Um, we also have something special today, and I'm, I'm a little sad that Pastor Eric isn't able to do this because uh, these two young men, I'm going to call up real quick jo- Johnny Seguine and Brody Carlson. Are they around? There they are. So these two young men are going to be going off to Calvary Bible Institute at Joshua Tree, and I was hoping, we were hoping Pastor Eric would be up here to kind of commission them out, but again, I'm the substitute teacher, so I just don't want to mess this up today. Give them a quick hand. So Johnny and Brody, just real quick little story. They came up to the office earlier this past week. If you want to make a million dollars, I got a million dollar idea for you. Follow them around for a year at CBI, make a documentary of them, and you will have yourself a million dollar documentary because they came up and they just gave us a glimpse into their life and, and what goes on in their life. I can't even really explain it. For, you just have to experience it. These guys live the most carefree uh, life, but they love the Lord dearly. I, I know Johnny wants to serve the Lord in missions. He's, he just recently has received that calling while on the mission field here a couple weeks ago. Brody wants to faithfully serve children in the children's ministry and is involved doing that. They both uh, lead worship or help to lead worship. So these two young men are our next generation. So the church is supporting them going to CBI or Calvary Bible Bible Institute. And then when they come back, we're putting them to work for free. They're going to be our interns and we're going to work them 60, 70 hours a week. And uh, their payment is going to be from the Lord. But uh, we're going to go ahead and commission them now and uh, see what the Lord has for them and see how these two young men are being raised up right before our eyes and, and see what the Lord has for them in their individual walks. Father God, we thank you for these two beautiful young men that you have raised up and put a calling on their life. Lord, we know that they could be in so many different places right now, uh, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, walking according to darkness, but you have brought them into the light, that the light of truth has now shined in their lives, Lord, and they have responded and have proclaimed you as their Lord and Savior. And in so doing, Lord, they just want to live a life pleasing to you, wholly given over to you, unapologetic, unashamed for the gospel. So Lord, would you train these two young men up in this next year of their life, in this season of life, Lord, may they get rooted and grounded in your word so firmly and so deeply that at the end of this year, Lord, you will send them out and they will be like a a, a fire, that they will set a fire wherever they go for your word, Lord, that it would be so contagious, it would be undeniable the work that you've done in their lives but the li- and in the lives that they are now doing a work in as you work in and through them. So Lord, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Give them uh, a capacity to understand your word at a new level. And may you continue to make firm your calling on their lives and may it be unmistakable, Lord. And when they come back, uh, we just can't wait to see what you will do through them and give you all the glory in the process. So Lord, keep them safe, provide for all of their needs. May they be undistracted in their devotion unto you as we learned last week in your word that there would be no distractions. Lord, that they wouldn't get off course, that their eyes wouldn't look to and fro, that they would remain solely focused on you. And so, Lord, build them up now, protect them, provide for them, and and we know you love them, we love them too, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 I'm telling you, it was probably the most entertaining 15 minutes conversation when they were up in the office. It was really sweet. Just, you know, Brody broke his finger and and Johnny was the, uh, the, the culprit, so... Uh, just give you a glimpse into what's going on. So anyway, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And the message today is to be known by him. 
Let's pray real fast. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it would pierce through our hearts now, dividing between soul and spirit and judging the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, Lord, that we would lay everything bare before you now and, and Lord, just hear from you through your word. So bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we now, excuse me, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to the Corinthians, what we know to be 1 Corinthians, for a couple different reasons, and we've been going through that on Wednesday nights. If you join us on Wednesday nights, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There were some immense problems in the church of Corinth at this time. He was addressing some major sin issues that had cropped up in the church as a result of spiritual immaturity, and there was a lack of response as, as a result of the church not properly addressing these sin issues. So Paul in the first six chapters really hammers that for six chapters. He hammers the issues that were there, how the church should have responded, and the corrective measures that needed to be taken. And then he shifts in chapter 7, where he says, now concerning. And he talks about marriage in chapter 7, and we did uh, a pretty, hopefully, uh, two solid weeks on what Paul had to say about marriage. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, and us today about marriage, singleness, and all of the scenarios and realities of those two statuses of life. Now he shifts, and you can see again, he uses that word, now concerning. So he's answering now a bunch of questions that were most likely uh, part of that original letter that was sent to him to the house of Chloe. There were a number of questions that the Christians of Corinth had, had, had needed answer for because they're living this new Christian lifestyle, and what does that now look like in these different areas? And one of these areas was things, more specifically food or meat, sacrificed to idols. You see that in verse 1. It says, things or food or meat sacrificed to idols. And so you have to understand in, in Corinth, and if you're not a geography major, Corinth is in kind of that major Mediterranean area in, in, in the area of Greece. I, I uh, encourage you to Google it if you're not quite sure where Corinth is. But the Greek and Roman culture was pervasive in the first century. And as a part of those cultures, pagan worship was pervasive. It was prevalent. And part of that pagan practice was sacrificing meat to their deities. And that's what paganism is. It is a false religious system that attributes worship and veneration to a multitude of gods, a multitude of deities. And part of that worship system is to offer up sacrifices to these, to these gods for two reasons. One, to hopefully um, reestablish or, or uh, uh, to um, attribute the, the attributes and, and, and the, uh, the responsibilities of those gods that they have. You are venerating those, but also to receive the benefit from those particular gods in those areas of life. For example, Rome had the god uh, of um, Juno. Juno was a goddess, and she was the goddess of being the protector and special counselor to Rome. And so she required a white heifer or a cow as a sacrifice. 
So therefore, a Roman citizen or maybe a statesman would offer this sacrifice in this area as, as, in, as a hope for protection in, in, and blessing for Rome and maybe their p- particular position within the state of Rome. And so offering this would be, we're, we're venerating or worshiping Juno in this way because she is the goddess of uh, the protector, special counselor of Rome, and then we want to receive a blessing in that area. Juno's husband, Jupiter, was heralded as the god of the sky and thunder and was worshiped as chief of all gods, and he required a white castrated ox as his uh, uh, um, offering or, or sacrifice. So these animals would obviously, uh, oftentimes be the, of highest quality. They would be of highest quality without any defect. They would be ritually cleansed, and they would be dressed in kind of religious ornaments and, and emblems to, to, uh, to be part of the sacrifice. And these sacrifices would take place in broad daylight, and so the Christians of this time who had come out of pagan worship were, were uh, immersed in this type of culture, in this type of society. So therefore, the people of Corinth, specifically the Christians, could not escape contact with this pagan style of worship. The sacrificed animal would ob- oftentimes be divided up into three parts. The first part would be consumed by the sacrifice and be offered to the god that was being sacrificed to or worshipped. The other, a, thir- a second portion would be given uh, to the person who brought the offering, and the third portion to the priest who was conducting the sacrifice. Now, because the sacrifices were so prolific, the priest would oftentimes have no need for the amount of meat that was coming his or her way. And so they would oftentimes take that meat into the marketplace and sell it for their personal profit, and now this meat was now being sold in what we would consider butcher shops. And so this was of the highest quality of meat, and it was actually sold at a reduced price in these butcher shops. And so you can see the quandary that these, Christian, these Corinthian Christians were in. High quality meat, low prices. Is it okay for me to buy this particular cut of meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? If there is a spiritual element to this, is it going to spiritually defile me as a Christian? Or if I'm over at somebody's house in a social setting, and I am eating a dinner over there, and they happen to cook meat that was previously sacrificed to idols, and I'm unknowingly ingesting this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, am I now unknowingly defiling myself as a Christian? So there was these questions in the church of Corinth. And so Paul is addressing this at this particular time. Thankfully, this isn't necessarily a reality for us as modern-day Christians, or, or is it? <laughs> As I was uh, looking through kind of news articles to kind of get caught up on the situation in Afghanistan, I came across this article, this true story. Elisa Rodriguez, a New Jersey apartment owner, suspected that one of her tenants, Emilio Otero, was sacrificing animals within his three-bedroom apartment in pagan worship of Santeria, or witchcraft. Santeria is a form of occult pagan worship which requires animal sacrifice for somebody to get a relationship with their deities. So when officials arrived at the residence, they were met by 22 different types of farm animals and a pigeon that was nailed up, a dead pigeon nailed up at the top of his door. Now, Mr. Otero denied any sort of pagan worship or or animal sacrifice. I don't know how you explain the dead pigeon. There were a number of chicken carcasses as well. So imagine going over this particular gentleman's house, sharing a meal and wondering, did I just have some goat or chicken that was sacrificed to his pagan gods? Would that spiritually defile me? This indeed goes on. There's nothing new under the sun, whether it's Rome or Greece or, or modern-day witchcraft. This stuff has been in our society for years and generations. And so as Christians, we need to understand that what, what Paul's going to say here and 
but he's going to have a bigger spiritual principle at the core of it. And so Paul's response to this specific question is really not the issue. As I just said, he's going to use this as a vehicle to give them a, a broader perspective, a broader spiritual uh, understanding, some principles to apply that hopefully matures them in their faith because really they were displaying some spiritual immaturity in the way that they responded to this question. So verse 1 says, we know that we have all knowledge. Paul takes that, and it's most likely the, por- the portion of that where it says we have all knowledge is most likely Paul quoting back to them what they wrote in their original letter to him when they asked the original question. So Paul's quoting back to them, we know that we all have knowledge. The Corinthian church, remember, prided itself on its intellectual abilities, its uh, understanding of higher level knowledge. It was a culture that prided itself on philosophical debate and academia, if you will. And so many philosophers would debate, and a lot of the Christians would have come out of that lifestyle or that way of thinking. So Corinth was obviously an affluent city as well. And as a result of its affluency, many people came from many different parts of the world and descended upon this particular uh, region of the world. And so intellectualism from a lot of different places had begun to crop up. And so a slogan of sorts of these Corinthian Christians, it was, we all have knowledge. We have this understanding, and it's kind of a higher level knowledge. So Paul begins to answer their question in this area, and he references to their, to their point, we all have knowledge. But the key issue is not the eating of the meat sacrificed to idols. The key issue is the belief and the disposition that the Corinthians had knowledge. That was the key issue. It was the disposition of their heart believing that they had knowledge. We all have knowledge or know better that idols are merely just statues made of wood or metal made by human hands and they have no power in and of themselves inherently they have no power in and of itself paul would also say we all know better that the piece of meat sacrificed to the idol doesn't change the piece of meat it doesn't all of a sudden have a different composition and we know that by verse four i know that's not part of our text this morning but if you read on paul says concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols these these meats sacrifice idols. We know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And later on, he's going to say what's behind that idol and what opens up the door when you get into idol worship and false pagan religion, what, what happens there. And we'll get to that when, when we get to that portion of the text. But he's saying inherently, this little statue, this little piece of wood, little, little piece of metal that is made with human hands or the piece of meat sacrifice, nothing changes inherently. So yes, we do know those things. But Paul takes issue of the knowledge and and tries to expand the Corinthians' view of a greater spiritual principle. He essentially is going to describe two different types of knowledge. Each type has a different origin and each type has a different outcome. So the first type, knowledge that leads to pride, knowledge that makes arrogant. In, In the Greek, you might have a translation that says, knowledge puffs up. So Paul is saying that there is a way as followers of Jesus Christ, that we ought to know, right? If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has yet known as he ought to know. So as Christians, there is a way that we ought to know, Paul is saying. But as soon as we believe we know anything, as soon as we suppose we have come into knowledge, Paul is saying, you don't know anything at all. You've erred right there. Stop right there. You don't know anything at all. So there's two types of knowledge. There's a knowledge that leads to pride, the puffing up, and there's a knowledge in a way that we ought to know. And we're going to see which way 
uh, a Christian, a person who's following after the Lord, should, should, uh, should emulate. So the Corinthians' expression of knowledge is led to their arrogance and their pride. And again, pride puffs up, Paul says. When you think through that term of puff up, you begin to understand that it's an outward expression of that person. It kind of gives you a graphic image as all of a sudden this person is now swollen. And anything that is puffed up is puffed up with there. So therefore, it really lacks true substance. It really doesn't have anything beneath the surface. The pride is the facade. The pride is the outward expression of what's going on inwardly in that person. The knowledge kind of being uh, hammered home in that, in that moment. So they're expressing their knowledge. They're expressing what they know to be true and, and factual. But they're doing it in such a way that is puffing them up, that is expanding them. But it's all a facade. It lacks substance. And because the root of this puffing up is pride... The one who's puffed up through knowledge feels the need to take the dominant role in the conversation, whether it's a situation at work, whether it's a situation at the home, whether it's a situation at the supermarket, the gas station, or any other station in life. The dominant role is asserted, it's assumed, and next thing you know, the relationship is compromised. There's an unwillingness to show any sort of humility because pride and humility are mutually exclusive. They don't exist in the same place at the same time. So the assertion of one's knowledge and intelligence actually is a representation of not their intelligence. It's a representation of their spiritual immaturity. And Paul has been addressing this, the lack of spiritual maturity in the Corinthian church throughout this letter. So in the context of our text this morning, uh, as it refers to the Corinthians, yes, you possess the knowledge correctly that eating meat sacrificed to idols is not a big deal. It's no issue. The knowledge that led them to be arrogant, prideful, puffed up toward those who were conflicted in this area is actually the issue. The variety of knowledge that leads to pride then leads to a lack of love. So if I have this knowledge and I assert it forcefully and I assert it without any um, reservation or consideration of those who I am asserting it to, it shows a lack of love because again, love builds up Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if, my, if the type of knowledge that I'm asserting, maybe aggressively or forcefully, makes me arrogant, makes me prideful, I'm now going to be loveless. I can't love people in the way that God requires me to. Knowledge that leads to pride and arrogance makes it impossible for me to love the agape love, the sacrificial love. And that's the word there that Paul is using, agape. In Greek, it is the sacrificial, selfless love that loves solely for the benefit of others without expecting anything in return. The benefit of somebody that receives that love is that's enough for the person giving that type of selfless, sacrificial love. That was the love Christ displayed on the cross. That sacrificial, selfless love, unconditional. Therefore, love, that type of love, builds up. It edifies, it produces growth in another person. But because there's a lack of love, my knowledge makes me prideful. My pride doesn't allow me to love selflessly and sacrificially. So therefore, there is no building up. There's actually tearing down. There's destruction. There's crushing. And that's what Paul is getting to. If you suppose you know anything, if you think you've arrived intellectually, if you think you've arrived because you have a certain amount of degrees on the wall, you have a certain amount of education in your back pocket, you know nothing. As soon as we have arrived because we think we have a certain amount of life experience, 
because we have come to certain conclusions on our own meditations, our own ponderings, we know nothing. This can even happen with the word of God. We can start getting so well-versed in the word of God, we can be experts in the Greek, we can be masters of the Hebrew, and yet all of it comes head knowledge. And we just become experts and knowledgeable about God's word, and yet it puffs us up. It makes us larger than what we are. It's just a posture. It's just a facade, and we have not love. Therefore, we can't build anybody up, and more than likely, we will tear down and destroy. So as soon as we come to this conclusion that we, that the knowledge in and of ourselves, in our own strength, when we believe we have this level of knowledge, we have to back up for a second as a Christian and say, we have not yet known as we ought to. So what is the way that we should know as we ought to? As, as we believe in our hearts that because we not only possess a high level of knowledge but, and, and, and are intellectually superior, how can I back up from that and not be prideful and not tear down? How can I back up from that and how is the way that I ought to know? Because again, the Corinthian logic, the Corinthian knowledge was not flawed. It wasn't that they had the wrong conclusion. That wasn't the issue. Paul is saying, it's not the issue, the knowledge that's the issue, it's the way that you are applying your knowledge. Your spiritual immaturity in believing you have knowledge is the issue. So our knowledge doesn't necessarily have to change. It can be used as a blessing. Our view of ourselves must change. So if we suppose we, there's a way that we ought to know as a Christian, there's a second type of knowledge that Paul's pointing to. And the key to changing this entire dysfunctional flow, right? It's a dysfunctional flow of knowledge leading to pride, leading to lovelessness, leading to destruction. How do I interrupt that dysfunctional cycle? You go to the last verse, verse 3. If anybody loves God, he is known by him. The Corinthians had come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And they were still maturing in their faith, just as all of us in here are. We all hopefully have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We've proclaimed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, have put our faith and trust in him. Our sins are forgiven at that exact moment. We are forgiven, we are saved, we are justified. But now we have this Christian walk ahead of us, and we are going to mature day by day as we conform ourselves into the image of Christ through serving him and worshiping him and getting in his word and, and all of those other aspects of the Christian life. So as we're maturing, uh, we can stumble from time to time or have a blind spot where we have a lack of maturity, and that is what's going on here in the church in Corinth. So when we say we love God, something has happened to you. To love God spontaneously in and of yourself does not happen. We love God because something has happened to us, and it's because we are known by him. One of the things that blew my mind when I came to the Lord and when I finally realized that the Lord knew me before I was in my mother's womb. To be known by God means that he knew us before the foundations of the, of the world. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says that to be known by God, he knew us before the foundation of the world of the world. Because God dwells outside of time, it's hard for us to wrap our brains around. It's a mystery because we're bound by time. Time is, 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 is what binds us, but God dwells outside of time. Therefore, he knows the beginning from the end, and the Bible calls that foreknowledge. And with that foreknowledge, he knew all of the mistakes I made. He knew all of my sin, all of the times that I had darkened understanding, was off track, off base, 
and yet he still knew that day when I would receive him. He knew me before I ever knew him. He knew me before the foundations of the world. Blows your mind. Jesus, when addressing his disciples in John 15, verses 16 through 17, says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Why? This I command you, that you love one another. The disciples were chosen by Christ. And you might be saying, well, this is, is, is there some sort of irresistibility here? Like I had no choice in the matter? No, absolutely you had a choice in the matter. God just knew your choice before you ever made it because he dwells outside of time. And so you absolutely had free will to come to him or not come to him, but he knew you would come to him at the moment you did. So when I made the decision to accept Jesus Christ in my own personal life and I thought I came to him and then somehow that prompted a response in him to receive me and then I came to this realization, wait a second, he first knew me, he first loved me before I ever came to him, before I ever had a knowledge of God, I'm known by him. You are known by him. We are known by him and as a result of that, we now have a love for God. We can say we love God because he has known us. That, know, that being known by him allows us to love God. Through all of my failures and missteps and times of shameful behavior, he knew me in that state, and he waited patiently, and he knew that day when I would make my proclamation of faith to him. And then from that point on, he blesses, and he continues to pour in, and he continues to mold and shape us into, your, into his image. The moment I begin to filter my thinking not my knowledge, not what I have amassed in my, my life, but through that filter that God first knew me. How can I in good conscience now have a prideful attitude? Instead of me supposing I know a few things, I realize that as I was known by God, I need to humble myself in humility. I need to be grateful and humble towards my God. So this is the second type of knowledge. To be known by God then leads me to a gratefulness and a humility. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, I can rightly say now, I love God. A true knowledge of God. Paul says, uh, Paul says to the, the church in Philippi, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. There is a real knowledge, and that real knowledge is to be known by him, have a gratefulness and humility to know that he first knew me, that gives me the ability to love him, and now I can walk in his ways. The type of knowledge that puffs up, again, is a front. It's a facade. It's rooted in pride. Real knowledge, the humility of God that knew me before the foundations of the world, that loved me through my disobedience and dysfunction, and accepted me as a son the moment I chose him, it produces a sincerity in me, a genuineness, an authenticity, a transparency. I'm no longer clothed in pride, swollen and puffed up in my own thinking. I'm clothed with humility, allowing me to know the heart of my Savior, the humble King. That is real knowledge. When I have this humble disposition, I now can love. That's what Paul's saying. Knowledge puffs up. Human knowledge puffs up. But love builds up or edifies. I can now love God by serving him, 
and I can now love people in a way that builds them up or edifies them. They're better off as a result of coming in contact with me. They leave built up, not down, not sullen, not discouraged, not broken, not crushed because of my knowledge. They leave built up because of the love that I now have in me as a result of being known by him. Our Lord, during his ministry on the earth, had a lot to say about humility. In, his, in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, he says, Blessed are the gentle, or you could also translate it, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Our inheritance is a function of our humility. The blessed are the humble, happy are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And then Matthew 23, 12, is my life verse. As many, uh, as you guys have known, as, as Pastor Eric has shared up here on many uh, a Sunday morning, his life path was one that was very different than mine, probably polar opposites, right? He was in a life that led him into literal prison. God delivered him mightily. And now he's senior pastor of our church. Praise be to the Lord. My life would have been one that would have been polar opposite to that. But I was in a different prison. I was in a prison of pride. When I walked uh, around, I knew that I had been a good person, done good things, was able to accomplish a few things in the arena of basketball, was able to get a college education, graduate, go on to an advanced degree and continue to uh, build up my career in that way. And by all accounts, everybody would have looked at me and said, man, that guy's a pretty good guy. He's nice to people, responsible, educated, X, Y, and Z. But when I came to Matthew 23, 12, as a Christian, I realized I was in a different sort of prison. I was in a prison of pride. Probably as dangerous, because when you think you're in a good place, you rarely seldom will think you have to make any changes until the Lord captures your heart and you realize you're first known by him. And when you're known by him, then you come into a place of humility. And when he says, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted, I realized I had been exalting myself way too long, putting myself up on a pedestal, thinking too highly of what I had done, what I had accomplished, and what I knew. And as a result, I had exalted myself. And the Lord so thankfully humbled me through his word. But sometimes we need to be humbled through circumstances. We need our flesh to be humbled in different ways. And people need to be taken down to certain situations to finally they break and say, okay, Lord, I humble myself. I yield myself completely over. I thank God that I just needed to read this verse and say, oh, Lord, I realize I have exalted myself way too long in the things that I thought I had accomplished on my own, in my own strength and my own abilities, and I needed to humble myself. Prior to that, what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, he outlined all of the hypocrisy and pride of the religious leaders of the day. The scribes, the Pharisees, They were the religious leaders of the day. And he says, you know what? They seat themselves in the chair of Moses. They place heavy burdens on the people. And those very burdens, they themselves seldom will even lift a finger to move. They don't bear the burdens that they place on others. They want their deeds to be noticed. They want their knowledge to be on display. They enjoy their places of honor and their respectful greetings. They love to be called rabbi or leader. They love the title. Jesus opposed all of this pride all of this arrogance, all of this puffed upness, if you will. And he said, call no one leader, call no one father, call no one your teacher, but God. Call one your father, call one your teacher, call one your, your, your uh, leader. That is why Jesus rejected religiosity to its fullest. 
because it's a form of man's knowledge supposing we know how to please God. That's all religion is, is man's construct of thinking he or she knows how to please God. We suppose we know how to follow the laws just right, just enough to be pleasing and acceptable to God. We know what sacraments to fulfill in order to be accepting and pleasing to God. We suppose we have to do X amount of good deeds and God will receive us. Man-made religion is, the following, is following man-made rules and regulation and it's born out of man's knowledge. And Paul said, you suppose you know <laughs> this knowledge that you think you have, but you do not know as you ought to know. We cannot love God and therefore love people through a works-based religious system. It just doesn't work. Because the more we do, the more tendency we will have to become puffed up, self-righteous in our own good religious deeds. And in that self-righteousness, we will start to believe we are holier than thou, kind of take that uh, uh, spiritual superior attitude. And the atonement that Jesus made on the cross for our sins is no longer enough because what I'm doing through my religious efforts is now making atonement for my own sins. I'm, in a sense, being my own savior. And I'm discounting and trampling underfoot what Christ did for me on the cross. We can only love God because he first loved us. And it is by his grace that we are saved, by faith, not of ourselves, Paul says. It is the gift of God and not the result of any works. Why? So that no one may boast. As soon as I get any inkling that my salvation is a result of my good works, my good deeds, my religiosity, immediately there's going to be a tendency, a temptation to boast, to brag, to become arrogant, puffed up, to espouse knowledge as to what the best way is. To get swollen in pride, that is what Jesus was um, exposing during the days of the scribes and the Pharisees. So when we realize that true knowledge is coming to the understanding that I am known by him, in light of that truth, I can come to a profound place of humility, which I gladly yield over everything to the Lord, and I enter into this love relationship with him. It's not based on religion. It's based on a love relationship with him. That's the true knowledge. And when I can rightly say I can love God, then I can love people. Love builds up. Agape builds up, Paul says. So now I can come into the presence of another believer or even a non-believer and I can build them up. I can edify them. I can pour into them. And they leave different. They leave changed because the Lord can use what he's instilled in me, this profound sense of humility, this profound sense of gratitude. And now out of selflessness and sacrificial love, I can pour into this person, whether it's my spouse, whether it's a brother, whether it's somebody at work, and I can be a life-changing agent for them. I can build them up. They can leave different, not crushed because I have this all-knowing knowledge, this sense of pride, this arrogance. They can leave built up. So now I can say I'm truly loving people. Last week, Pastor Eric taught on loving people out of, excuse me, two weeks ago, Pastor Eric taught on loving God in John chapter 12. If you were with us two weeks ago, he did kind of a two-part series in loving God, loving people, what we uh, so uh, closely hold to here at this church. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus in John 12, in Mary's uh, humble expression, she's the sister of uh, Martha and, and Lazarus, 
In her humble expression of love and devotion to the Lord, she anointed Jesus' feet with that costly perfume, if you remember. Knowledge says, knowledge, the, the puffed up, arrogant pride, why was that perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, that's a true statement. That was very costly perfume. It was worth about a year's worth of wage, 300 denarii. And yes, it could have, be, it could have been sold and given to, a poor, to the poor. That is a true statement. No, nothing wrong with that, Judas. But what was wrong with Judas's heart? It was all pride. And he had an ulterior motive, right? He was already pilfering from the, the treasury already. Love says, to be known by you, Lord, is beyond words. And that love surpasses knowledge. It doesn't sometimes make sense intellectually. Therefore, I want to humbly minister to you, Lord, and I don't care what it costs me. A year's wage, a month's wage, whatever it costs you, Lord, I'm going to minister to you in, in a sheer sense of humility. She was wiping Jesus' feet with a year's worth of wages with her hair. Complete submission, complete humility, complete love. She was loving God to the fullest because she had a profound sense of being known by him. That was her response. Last week, Pastor Eric taught on loving people out of Luke chapter 10. That was the Good Samaritan. A man was left on the side of the road after being robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And the priest and the Levite who possessed the highest levels of knowledge as, a result, as, as they pertain to the law and the prophets, they had a very high understanding of God's word. But they also represented legalism, religiosity. And they crossed over to the other side. And they left that man for dead. And that's what religion does. That's what legalism does. It has an inability to love. It will cross over to the other side. It will pass by. Because it's all about rules and regulations. Legalism can't love. The Samaritan who knew nothing about religiosity, didn't have any ideas about legalism, didn't even cross his mind. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. And he loved this man by bandaging him up. He anointed him with oil. He placed him on his animal. He brought him to the inn and he told the innkeeper, here's two days of, of stay for him. And if he incurs any other charges, you know what, I'll come by and I will make sure that I square that up with you. There will be no other expenses on your behalf. That's loving people, loving at all costs. He didn't benefit anything. In fact, it cost him time, money, resources, but he loved this man and he had no other reason to love him, but he felt compassion. Love edifies, love builds up. This man was changed forever. Could have been left for dead. He was half dead, the Bible says. He was now changed forever, built up. Imagine the gesture, the, the gratitude that that man who was left half dead would have felt for, for a complete stranger to do that for him. Ben, the benefit of unconditional sacrificial love. It's powerful and impactful. We can only do that when we know we've been known by him, when we're loved by him, and then our response now is to love others in that same way. That's true knowledge. Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. It doesn't even sometimes comprehend or click or calculate in our minds. We can't grasp it intellectually because it's that, that special that amazing. To be known by him produces humility. It allows us to love God 
Therefore, now we can love people. We can build others up. And we can now be filled up to the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are known by you. We thank you, Lord, that though we love you, you first loved us. And that despite our wanderings, our rebelliousness, our times of even shaking our fists at you and being outright blasphemous to you, Lord, when we were running from you, denying you, Lord, you continued to love us. That while we were yet sinners, Lord Jesus, you died for us. And so to be known by you, Lord, it, may it just produce in us a profound sense of humility, a heart of gratitude. And in that state of humility now, Lord, we can serve you and love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that now we can love in a way that builds up others. It edifies. We can love people in a way that changes their life profoundly, specifically, and we can give you the glory for it. And so, Lord, if there is any shred of self-exaltation, pride, puffed-upness in our lives, Lord, would we be honest to examine our hearts this morning, confess it before you, and that you would take it from us. Lord, may we be a humble people, for you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, we want to be humble because there will be a day when you exalt us. Because you said, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. For the humble will inherit the earth. So, Lord, we know you're coming back soon. You're coming back quickly. So, Lord, may we humble ourselves today. In Jesus' name. The ultimate... Uh, act of humility is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus said, anyone who confesses me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But there's a second part to that. He says, but if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. So that's why here at Calvary Chapel West Grove, we ask for a public declaration of faith. It's not because we believe it's the right way. It's because Jesus said so in his word. And so, know that you are known by him and have been known by him before you were even in your mother's womb. And think about that for a moment. That he knew you before the foundations of the world and he chose to die for you. In maybe your darkest place, your most rebellious place. But he's willing to receive you now. Full pardon, full forgiveness, if you just declare him before other believers here before the world, before man. Is there anybody this morning that would like to make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior? Just gonna ask you to stand and pray a simple prayer. And as you pray that simple prayer, you will have many people praying with you, praying for you, and celebrating. Is there anybody this morning that would like to make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior? Proclaim faith. Be forgiven. Start that new life with him. Would you please stand? Praise God. Well, it was a 
honor to share God's word with you this morning. I pray that uh, this week would be filled with his richest blessing, his goodness would pour forth into your life, that you continue to stay close to him through your times of devotion, his quiet times in prayer. And we hope to see you at, at maybe a midweek service or a midweek Bible study or prayer time. I encourage you to check the website. We have a lot, a lot of things going on these next couple weeks. So pray that you, again, get plugged into the body here at Calvary Chapel West Grove in a, in a profound way. Would you all stand for a closing song and have a blessed rest of your weekend. Amen.